And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed the extra special coverage of The Manster uh, on last month's episode. If you didn't get a chance to download that one, why don't you go back, download the last one. I, I think you'll uh, you'll appreciate it. And you might also want to head over to my brother's show, uh, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, and uh, take a listen to the uh, very special coverage of Kaltiki the Immortal Monster. Just throwing it out there um, uh, for, for your listening pleasure. But we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at the next of the Showa Gamera films, which is Gamera vs. Jider. And we also have the next issue of Marvel Godzilla, which is issue number 18, continuing the storyline started out last time, where the uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla squad used Pym particles to shrink the King of the Monsters down to be able to fit inside a birdcage. So, two really good features for the show today. But before we get into that, we have to cover the news. And we have quite a bit of news. So, uh, let's get right into it. Up first, big announcement out of Subaraya as they have announced that they, uh, they, their, their legal proceedings involving the international ownership rights to Ultraman, the Ultra series, have been settled and have been settled in a positive win. For Subaraya. Now, Subaraya has been in legal entanglements with Thai company UMC, also known as Chayao, I think is how you pronounce their kind of local name, over the international rights to several, most of, the Showa-era Ultraman shows since 1996. Now, the, the crux of this was that a document was produced by the president of UMC that was supposedly a letter from the late Noboru Subaraya granting international release lights to these um, to these shows and several movies. Now, Subaraya has long maintained that this document was a forgery. And uh, there's been a lot of twists and turns in this case through several countries over the years, including uh, lawsuits in Japan, Thailand, and China. Now, some of those have gone in the favor of UMC. Lately, they've been going in the favor of Subaraya. Now, this lawsuit that was brought up in uh, the United States at the tail end of last year and just was finally settled um, in March of 2018, this was uh, the latest one. And um, now the suit made its way to the U.S. As I said, the key document being that supposed letter to the late uh, Nobu, Noboru Subaraya. Well, in the United, in the American court, it was declared a forgery, and the claims of UMC's rights were completely voided. UMC then filed an appeal, and which they lost. And then the court issued a final judgment, which sounds kind of like an attack from a tokusatsu show. So I like that. It, which echoed the jury's decisions, claiming that the document was a fake and that UMC had no rights and all of them go back to Subaraya. Now, Subaraya, in their statement, uh, they basically make the case that this closes the case and reasserts their worldwide rights to Ultraman and that they hope to continue to uh, bring the brand uh, throughout the world now going forward. Hopefully this means more Ultra stuff here in the West from a selfish perspective, but very good result for Subaraya. Th this whole thing stunk 
frankly, from uh, the first time I learned about the, the supposed document that, you know, didn't have certain information right on it, didn't have the names of shows right, it did not match Noboru Subaraya's uh, handwriting. Several of the uh, cases have involved handwriting experts brought in specifically to prove that this was a forgery. This um, happened again in, in the American case here. What's thing that's interesting is that Subaraya specifically states that in the American courts, the, the system of discovery, which if you've ever watched Law & Order or any one of those other shows, you know discovery is any information that one side of a case gets they have to provide to the other side of the case. It's, it's you know, they have to turn this over. And sometimes, in, especially in, in suits like this, you'll turn over so much documentation that whatever you turn over is lost and they don't have time to go through it all. But uh, in, in their official statement, Subaraya specifically credited the American uh, law regarding discovery as providing them access to documents that they had not seen before that helped them prove their case. So I thought that was pretty neat that, uh, you know, the American legal system had something different about it that was able to help Subaraya in this uh, in this particular suit and hopefully put this thing to bed for good. Now, speaking of Ultraman stuff coming down, the new Ultraman series, Ultraman Rubu, which is R slash B, has been announced. Now, what's interesting is that this will be the first Ultra series in quite a while that will feature a pair of brothers as the two heroes, Ultraman Rosso and Ultraman Blue. And uh, this will debut in Japan on uh, uh, on July 7th. Now, there has not been an announcement from Crunchyroll about simulcasting here in the West, but they have carried the Ultraman series on their simulcast, starting with X and then continuing through Orb and Jeed. So I have a little doubt that we'll get Ruba here in, in the States as well. Looks very neat, as the name implies. Um, Rosso is uh, kind of a red-colored theme, and Blue is a blue theme. And Rosso is the older brother, and Blue the younger brother. So be kind of interesting to see this show play out. I am so far behind. I'm not. It's not even funny. I have not finished Orb yet, and I, I went alone. Jeed. And the problem is, is that even though yes, they're on Crunchyroll, <laughs> I can't tether onto the Wi-Fi uh, at work, so I can't watch them on my lunch break like I did with a lot of other shows where I would just download fan subs. So I got. I got to get caught up. I got to just set aside some time to finish up Orb and get through Jeed. Hopefully before uh, Ruba uh, debuts this summer. In Godzilla news, the anime Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle, which is the follow-up to Godzilla Planet of Monsters, will be coming to theaters in Japan on May 18th, with a worldwide Netflix release uh, slated for, quote, later this year. So uh, not sure when exactly that's going to be. It was a few months after Planet of the Monsters was released before it came on Netflix, but certainly not a, a long wait. The story this time out, from what we uh, have been told, will involve Mechagodzilla, which makes sense, as uh, Mechagodzilla was, of course, referred to and teased in the opening segments of uh, Planet of the Monsters. So very much looking forward to this. I like Planet of the Monsters. I'm hoping to get some coverage on it um, later on this year, maybe over the summer. I'm reaching out to some other folks about covering that, maybe some folks who are into anime. So, you know, just a little tease there. So we will be talking about Planet of the Monsters going forward, but very cool to see City on the Edge of Battle uh, officially on the on the docket for Japan. And with a, you know, coming right out and saying it's coming to Netflix, that makes me feel uh, very warm and tingly inside. Looking forward very much to seeing more Godzilla anime in the future. Talking about stuff coming to home media, Pacific Rim Uprising is coming to home media on June 19th, which is right after my birthday. So a perfect time 
uh, as far as I am concerned. Multiple formats as to be expected, 4K, uh, Blu-ray 3D, Blu-ray combo pack DVD. Uh, check your whatever your favorite retailer is for this. I have pre-ordered using the Amazon link on 2TrueFreaks.com. I have pre-ordered the Blu-ray combo pack for this, which is the same format that I have Pacific Rim in. I really liked Uprising. I mean, no, it's not as good as the original, but it is a lot of fun. It is definitely a good, entertaining film, and I really did enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to watching it. Amusingly, so are my kids, because I re-watched Pacific Rim right before I went to go see Uprising, and the kids watched with us, and they really liked Pacific Rim, so they are eager in fact, my oldest boy has been asking me when Pacific Rim Uprising is going to come out so he can watch it. So he's very much excited about that, too. So uh, look for that one. And one more little bit of Gaiden uh, streaming news. Common Rider Amazons is now available for uh, viewers on Amazon Prime, appropriately enough. It's under the title of Am Amazon Riders. Uh, but in, And it appears to be a Prime Video exclusive. I didn't find a way that you could purchase it, only watch it unlimited through uh, through a Prime membership. Uh, in includes the entire first season, which is 13 episodes. Uh, I'm surprised this took as long as it did, because I, Kamen Rider Amazons was an Amazon Japan exclusive, so it certainly was already in a, a relationship with Amazon. So, very cool here if you've got Prime, uh, Amazon Prime, you can check out uh, Kamen Rider Amazons. And uh, very much, very cool to see Kamen Rider getting an official distribution here in the U.S., which it has not gotten since Kamen Rider Dragon Knight, which was quite a while ago at this point. And then before that, the last one was Masked Rider by Saban, which still has not gotten a DVD release. So uh, very, very um, encouraging to see Kamen Rider Amazons uh, showing up here uh, in the West. Hopefully the second part of Kamen Rider Amazons, I believe there was a second season, will also make its way over here to streaming as well, which would be nice. Now, I have one other bit of news. This came in from my brother Jason Giaconetti, who wrote in simply with EDD News, and he says, Hey Luke, Horror Hound issue number 70, which is cover dated March, April 2018, features Pacific Rim Uprising on the cover and has exclusive interviews with the director, Stephen Tonight. And Stephen Tonight, of course, um, uh, a lot of fans now mostly recognized, besides from Pacific Rim, as the showrunner for uh, Netflix's Daredevil, Marvel's Daredevil, and with Charlie Day and Byrne Gorman. Both are good little interviews, and some great pictures are featured. Uh, they also featured a board about the Rampage toys, including the retro stretch figures for Lizzie, George, and Ralph, and those are very cool. I had thought that those were not Lennard, but they actually are. Those stretchy figures are put out by Lennard. So you'll find them racked up in your local Walmart with the Rampage toys, and they look really nice. They very are very evocative of the original arcade designs for the three monsters in kind of a, a, an SD style, a little bit with a big head. But I, I really like those stretchies. Uh, Jay continues, and while that is all cool, the section called Bored to Death features an article by Shay Edwards called Attack of the Kaiju Invaders. In the article, a number of kaiju board slash card games are talked about. The games featured are The Creature That Ate Sheboygan from 1979, Super Giant Monster Showdown, Monster Island, Monsters Menace America, Monster Apocalypse, which is a fantastic game that will be covered here at some point in the future, um, Smash Monster Rampage, King of Tokyo, which is the big one for me, Kaiju, Attack of the Kaiju, Kaiju Incorporated, and Maximum Apocalypse Kaiju Rising. They also feature a sidebar about the Pacific Rim Hero Clicks. Yeah, you know, it's funny that there's been a number of, of Kaiju-themed board games over the years, None of them, I don't think, really caught on until King of, King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo is a really popular game. There's been a, at least a couple of expansions for it. 
Uh, anytime I go to the game shop, you can see King of Tokyo and, and its expansions. When I was at Gen Con a couple of years ago, there were lots of people that I saw playing pickup games and stuff or talking about it. So King of Tokyo is kind of the big one. There's another one here, which is, it doesn't get mentioned, which is RAR. R-A-R-R, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, uh, which is a, um, a game that I actually backed on Kickstarter. So I've got the Kickstarter edition of it, which got some extra stuff. And that's kind of like a bidding game where you bid how much you're willing to wager to destroy certain cities. has a really neat mechanic where you actually generate your monster's name and powers through card drafting, where you draft a, I think you're dealt a base card, and then you draft two other syllables, and you make your monster's name, and those the syllable cards in your base monster card have the, the powers that you can use. So that's very cool. There's some great stuff. Um, BoardGameGeek.com. If you want to learn about any board games or card games, that is a site I recommend. They're a fantastic site. They have sister sites for RPGs and video games as well. But BoardGameGeek.com. I'm definitely going to be looking up some of these that I'm not familiar with and see if I can trap these down. The, I, I called out Monster Apocalypse. Monster Apocalypse was actually a collectible miniatures game. And it's, it's, it's no longer being published, but that, that is a really fun game. My friend Joe and I have played that game several times. Uh, I've got uh, a big army of sea monsters <laughs> for that one called, called the Tritons for the name of the, the, the sea monsters. Ironically, kind of like the uh, the kaiju in Pacific Rim. So that's that's kind of funny. Uh, so I have long had Monster Apocalypse on the two cover list here on Earth Destruction Directive. So uh, I, that will be coming at some point in the future as well. Uh, Jay finishes up. There's also a Leprechaun retrospective in this issue, but that might be a different show. Until next time, keep them stomping. Signed, Jason. Jay, thank you very much for that. Really appreciate that. I know you're always up on the stuff going on in, in Horror Hound and all that, so I very much appreciate that. If you have any news that you think is appropriate and you want to pass along, go ahead and send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll get you and your um, your news here on the air, and be sure to give you credit for it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get right into our movie, which is Gamera versus Jiger. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at Relatively Geeky Podcast blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family.
Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera vs. Jiger was theatrically released on March 21st, 1970 in Japan. Now, it never got a release over here in the United States, but it was sold to AIP Television later on in 1970 as Gamera vs. Monster X. It is one of the lesser-seen Gamera films, coming from one of the later ones that AIP released to television. Our director is Noriaki Yuasa. Our writer is Nissan Takahashi. Our music is by Shinsuke Kikuchi. And our producer is Hiramasa Nagata. And you might recognize those as that's pretty much the same creative crew that worked on pretty much all of the uh, of the Gamera films uh, right on down the line. Now, our summary today comes... Uh, I was doing some research and I found a really good summary at AXS.com. So this is that that is where our summary comes from today. Our story begins with Japan preparing for the 1970s World's Fair. On Wester Island in the Pacific, scientists discover a strange, large statue that is known as the Devil's Whistle. The statue is removed so that it can be showcased as part of the World's Fair, but its removal attracts Gamera, who tries to prevent it from leaving the island. But what the scientists do not realize, and what Gamera knows, is that the statue has kept the monster Jiger at bay for centuries. With the statue removed, Jiger goes on a rampage through Osaka. In the meantime, the statue is being transported via ship to Expo. Almost immediately, the ship's crew begins to fall ill as the statue emanates a piercing sound. It is this squeal that makes humans weak and sick. Jiger and Gamera battle, with Jiger successfully injecting an egg into Gamera. Jiger then uses its energy weapon to vaporize various parts of the city of Osaka, killing all the humans in the various grids by turning them into skeletons. Jiger also manages to take down the JSDF's aircraft by using her spear-like quills. Debilitated by the alien organism growing inside of him, Gamera is close to death. Fortunately, a couple of kids come up with a plan to go inside Gamera using a small submarine. Inside the giant turtle, the boys... Japanese boy Hiroshi and the American boy Tommy fight and subsequently take out the baby Jiger inside Gamera. Scientists then successfully revive Gamera using high-voltage electricity, who uses a devil's whistle to take down Jiger once and for all. Thanks to Gamera, the 1970 World's Fair in Japan can go on as planned. Pretty good summary, I think. This uh, Most people know this film takes place in and around the 1970 World's Fair, World Expo, I think it was actually called. Uh, the Expo is a major major set piece in this film, as we'll see. Uh, I, I had watched this one, this is, I think, only the second time I, I had watched this one, because I watched it uh, a few years back when I first got a copy of it on DVD, and I don't think I had watched it since. As I said, this was not like um, War of the Monsters, Gamma vs. Barrigan, which was on a lot when I was a kid, I remember that one a lot, and this was never covered on Misty, so I never saw it in that format either. So uh, let's get into our notes. Highlights of the previous films roll under the credits. We see uh, all the color films anyway. So we see G uh, Gamera fighting Berrigan, Gauss, Virus, and Guren, which is a nice touch. Uh, of course, the Gamera song is playing, and we get a little highlight reel. I thought that was a nice touch, and it's a good way to get some monsters right at the beginning of the film. Although this one doesn't make us wait very long for the monsters. You know, the kids want to see the monsters up there, and it's nice to see the old, the old uh, enemies come back. A major element of this film is the development of a, a fleet of submarines, and specifically this one submarine that's developed for Expo Land, which is what they referred to the Expo as. As Hiroshi's father is a shipbuilder, and he's been asked to build 
a fleet of small submarines for Expo Land. And so this little yellow submarine that they build uh, for the World's Fair is obviously that's the submarine they're going to use to to go into Gamera later. What this made me think of, and this may just be the two true freaks aspect of this, is uh, all the submarines that Walt Disney designed, obviously, for Disneyland, and then coming back uh, east and used in Walt Disney World at the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You know, Walt used to joke that he had the largest civilian fleet of submarines in the world. Now, those were not actual submarines. Those were, you know, uh, boats that were designed to behave like submarines, whereas this is an actual submarine. Uh, but that, that, was the, that was the first thing I thought of. It gets a little bit even more of a strange Disney connection right after that, because very early on we get a travelogue of the Expo, uh, with uh, a character kind of explaining all the different countries and all the purposes of the expo and all that. And we see there's a monorail uh, in, in and around the expo. So another Disney uh, connection there with the monorail. And, of course, the obvious Disney World's Fair slash World's Expo connection uh, goes very deep, you know, to seek out. Uh, Scott Gardner's talked about this a lot on um, uh, Earning My Ears and a few other shows on the, on the network. You can dig into those. Out on Wester Island, which is a kind of a, I guess a play on Easter Island a little bit, and you got the Devil's Whistle. It's this big statue, and it looks like a type of like a Maui statue that you might uh, associate with Easter Island, but it's got a long uh, pointed part that's underground. So when they pull it out, it looks kind of like a statue with a long needle on the bottom, which was kind of interesting. But it makes sense when, you know, you understand that, that, that it's there to keep Jire in place. At one point, we have a discussion between the expo officials and a representative of the natives of Wester Island. And the the native, his, I watched this uh, dubbed, his voice is not dubbed. So he's speaking probably most likely a South Pacific, South Pacific dialect. They do, used to do this a lot with uh, the natives of Infant Island and such over in the uh, Godzilla series. But he specifically says Jiga, Jiga. And the Roman, the, the Romanization I've often seen for Jiger is J is J A I G A Jiga, so it's slightly different. The dub says clearly Jiger with an er at the end and Jiga, but that really is pretty close. It's not the type of situation we had with the last couple of monsters with Gurin with the R versus Gillen with the L sound, the R L confusion, and even more obscurely with the uh, virus virus uh, V and B confusion. For, for virus as well. So, uh, so Jiga, it's, it's, I, I like it. It's, it's, and Jiger, G, J I G E R. It's easy to spell. It's easy to pronounce. One thing I do like about Jiger is that she's not an alien. You know, she's a, she's a creature based on Earth. She's an Earth creature. So even though she's got all these strange powers and stuff that we'll get to in a minute here, she is an Earth creature. She's this ancient, ancient creature from, you know, uh, well, been on, obviously he's been here a long time. You get the feeling that Jiger may have, you know, uh, roamed the earth, destroying early civilizations and fighting with other things long before the coming of, uh, oh no, of, of the natives of Wester Island. So I, I think it's a cool origin, even though, you know, just Monster from the South Seas is kind of a common trope. I think Jiger is a good example of it. Now, I said earlier that the film does not make us wait long for the monsters, and Gamera enters the story properly at the 11-minute mark as he attacks the, uh, attacks is probably not the right way. He tr basically tries to stop the crew from removing the devil's whistle and taking it out because he knows it's going to release Jiger. So basically he flies around and tries to stop. They have these really actually kind of neat jet helicopters. Understand, I know I'm always partial to, to sci-fi helicopters, but they've got these jet helicopters that are to pull and airlift this statue out to the ship. 
Um, so he kind of flies around them trying to, you know, prevent them from doing it. And so the leader of the expedition, who is Tommy's dad, they, he orders all the men to fire on Gamera. So they've got rifles and they're firing on Gamera. So you're going to use rifles against Gamera. You really think that's going to work? I mean, it's not even going to, it's, it, it's not even going to annoy him. It's just, he's not even going to notice it. And he doesn't, he completely no sells it. I mean, eventually, um, you know, they, they do manage to, uh, get the statue away and get it onto the ship. And then by the 18-minute mark, Jiger enters because they removed the Devil's Whistle. And so, you know, that, that means that Jiger and Gamera, it's time for them to fight. Now, being a Gamera series enemy, Jiger has uh, several strange powers. Uh, she has a sort of uh, magnetic attraction, almost, um, where she can just make objects come to her paw, and then she'll throw it or whatever. Uh, I, I've seen this, I'm not really sure what this is supposed to be. It's not very well explained, at least in the in the dub, I suppose I could take a look and see if the subtitles do a better job of explaining it. She also has uh, spines kind of on her face. She looks kind of like a triceratops a little bit, uh, in that she's quadrupedal and long and got a you know a armored front, and she can shoot the the quills off of her face. And in fact, uh, it does this, and and is, this is a pretty effective attack that she uses. She also has um, what look like jets coming out of like the ridges on her face so she can use them to uh, boost forward you know by firing the jets off of her face shield and then she'll just kind of fly her along with it which is very strange looking this is the, the first image i ever saw of jagger was in an old hardcover book from that my dad had when i was a kid that showed all various monster you know it was, it was one of these um you know oversized hardcovers and it had i remember it having a promotional shot of gamma and jagger and i remember her flying with the jets that always kind of stuck with me We'll see later. She also has an injector in her tail that comes. That's a major portion of the story. That it's a long uh, needle-like appendage she can extend out of her tail to inject uh, an egg into her opponent. And she also has an atomic heat beam that, much like Berrigan, comes out of her back. Which is again, we'll we'll get to that in a bit. So obviously, like all good Gamera foes, uh, has to have a lot of strange, unusual powers because that's kind of the way that. Uh, uh, that Takahashi wrote these these monsters, and then you know it, it's it's appropriate. It's it's kids, you know, don't like monsters that usually just have like one thing. They need monsters, you know, that have a lot of different things. I guess is the motivation here. Now the fight between the two of them, Gamera is really in charge of this fight. I mean, Jiger keeps uh, attacking at him, but Gamera he he's he's ready for the fight. At one point, there's a really nice bit where he ducks his head into his shell to avoid a tail chop from. Uh, from Jiger, which is really neat. But the tide turns in Jiger's favor when she breaks out the needles, and she actually shoots the needles into his uh, forelimbs, all four of his forelimbs. And uh, and so he can't pull his, his arms and legs back into his shell. And that's so what Jiger does after she impales him in this, and he literally looks like he's in pain. He's flailing around, the gamma is, and you know, really looks hurting, is um, Jiger gets into the water, and then she fires her jets, and she, like, jet skis away. It's actually really kind of funny. Because, you know, like, the image of, like, the Mothra as a, as a caterpillar kind of on top of the water rocking along? Well, Jiger is zooming along. And so she zooms off from Wester Island in, in pursuit of the whistle. And Gamera is um, is stuck there, which is, uh, it's, it's like, he can't, because he can't go to UFO mode. He can't use his jet boosters. He can't swim as fast as she can jet ski along, so... It's kind of a, a, a bad situation that Gamera finds himself in. I really like that. The men getting sick on the ship from transporting the statue, we will soon find out, is because of the low-frequency waves that are emitted by the statue as air passes through it. 
Um, this is, uh, again, a major plot point, but I did like it. It's that this, this, because the natives didn't want them to take the statue because the statue held a great curse. And now the members say, oh, it, it, it is cursed. Everyone's getting sick. So it's the, you know, the, uh, the superstition versus science theme, which is very common in a lot of these films. And I, and I like that. It kind of reminded me with them tra- uh, transporting this thing by ship, of course, of the big ship uh, and boat ride, so to speak, for Berrigan, although he's just a little baby in an opal at that point. He's not uh, a full-grown monster like Jagger. While Jagger is jet skiing along, uh, she crashes through boats. I mean, their boats are just kind of sailing, and she crashes right into them. The first time we see this, it's really quick. It's um, cut, cuts away probably too quick, but then they do it again, and we get to see it. It's real nice because it's a it's a puppet of Jagger. It's obviously the water puppet, and they use this a couple of times also where she uses her jets to make a big leap through the sky and tries to knock Gamera out of the sky. Just being zoomed along the effects tank, but the impact of her crashing into the boat and then the boat just splitting and sinking is well done. I like that scene quite a bit. Anytime, uh, you know, the thing with, with ships being attacked, again, you got to always remember, in Japan, so many people make their living in and around ships, you know, so shipping is very, very common, uh, whether you're talking commercial shipping or fishing or anything like that. So when you're on a nation with an island and so many villages uh, that are still fishing villages, anything involving boats and all that uh, really kind of strikes home. Um, after Jiger lands, we get some legitimate city smashing, which we have not seen in quite a while in the Gamera series, because the only city smashing that's in Gamera versus Virus was of the stock footage variety, because Gamera and Virus fight on a beach. And then Gamera versus Guren, yeah, they are fighting in the alien city, but it's kind of a low-rent, you remember that that film, kind of a low-rent, you know, alien city. It's not real populated. Here, Jiger rocks through Osaka, and it's really well done for the Gamera series especially, especially later on. You know, their budgets had been in decline as the series went through the 60s, and now we're into 1970. But they do a good job with what they have here, the, the, the crew at Dai. Uh, really, you know, put their best foot forward in this. And we do get to see Jiger attack the city and the JSDF scramble to try to, to take her out. And um, much like we saw Gauss use the sonic beam to slice jets in half and Barugan, even earlier than that, use his cold tongue to freeze tanks and freeze jets, Jiger uses her special powers to take out the uh, JSDF jets, shooting the needles and, like, missiles basically through uh, the Jets. It's actually a, a real nice sequence. It's one of my favorite parts of this film. I said this, for a film that, you know, kind of gets overlooked because it's not as common as the others, there's some good stuff in here, and this sequence is, is uh, part of it. Interestingly enough, during this segment, um, the uh, JSDF dubs Jiger Monster X. Uh, this is where the uh, AIP television title comes from. Ironically, this is used many years before Toho would use the name Monster X in Godzilla Final Wars which we uh, will get to eventually here. But if you've seen that, you know Monster X is the one that is the hidden humanoid form that eventually becomes Kaiser King Ghidorah in, in that film. So the use of Monster X in uh, Final Wars always amused me because that was not a Toho reference, that was a Dai reference. We cut back to Gamera on Wester Island and his struggles to get these needles out of his arms and his, and his legs. And so he's basically rolling around and he ends up hammering the nails out of his legs so that by, by smacking his forelimbs against a rock over and over to get the leg, get him out so he can get on off his back and onto his stomach and then be able to reach and pull them out of each of his forearms and then be in pursuit. Gamera takes a lot of punishment in this film. He does in most of his films, but this one is kind of rough on him. 
And uh, you really get behind him. You can you can again imagine that the motivation was to have the kids cheering for Gamera to to, to pull through and, and and hang tough in this situation. Now back in Osaka, Jiger breaks out her atomic heat ray, which is kind of a big arc that comes out of her back, very similar again to Berrigan's um, death ray, except his was a rainbow, and this one is is kind of an orangey color. Now, what's interesting is any of the people caught in the path of the heat ray get turned into skeletons and immediately are their, their flesh is just completely vaporized. Now, this is 1970. The next year, 1971, is Godzilla vs. Hedra. Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. And if you remember from that film, again, we'll, we'll cover it um, uh, going forward here on the show, but if you've seen that, you know that when Hedra uses his smog attack, when he spews his poison gas... Anyone caught in the path of a poison gas, their flesh is dissolved and they're left as skeletons. So I thought that was interesting. I, I don't think Bono was ripping off this film. I think they both just kind of came to a similar conclusion at this around the same time. So that to me is just more ironic than anything else, especially given the timing. When Gamera shows up, they once again ta- tangle. This is where Jiger breaks out her injector tail. And this looks really painful because she basically finds a, a soft spot in between the shells and just sticks this giant long white needle thing into Gamera. It looks like it hurts. And he kind of freaks out. He gets all, because it. I met, you know, you get the real feeling that this really does hurt. And it's kind of a sneaky, mean-spirited attack, too, you know, to not only to uh, hurt your opponent, but also to uh, create a, this parasite, parasitic uh, baby monster that's going to live inside of him and slowly kill them. After Gamera gets injected, he has this long, arduous march to try and get to the water where he starts out on two legs and then collapses on all fours. And he's basically just pulling himself to try and get to the water so that he can go underwater and heal. And he basically only gets his front two legs in before he's basically stopped dead and is frozen. And you see the color start to drain out of him. His green skin starts turning to this ashy white. It's actually very effective. Reminds me again of when Barugan freezes him and he gets turned solid. Uh, ice in that case but here his whole face just turns this ashy white and all the humans immediately begin uh expecting gamera is dead gamera must be dead jiger killed gamera the only two of course that don't believe are hiroshi and tommy because there are two kid stars and there's a lot of kid stuff in this movie you know i'm not covering it because to me it's just not that interesting it is what it is as far as the kid stuff but even though like i said this is so far has been a better entry in the series they've still got the kids in there at this point it was part and parcel with the series and we weren't going to avoid it so the scientists begin to examine gamera and trying to figure out if he is dead or not we get this great shot on like an overhead projector screen of an x-ray of gamera which is hilarious showing where the injection was and all that it's it it looks just like an turtle and a turtle's x-ray it's just really big so that really cracked me up during that same presentation they explain what what they think happened that jiger injected an egg now, the egg is, um, you know, feeding itself off of Gamera's blood, which is why he's starting to lose the color. And they show this stock footage of this elephant that has a major, like this massive lump on its trunk, right? And they don't know what it is. And they talk about how, oh, that it was a parasitic being that laid an egg inside the elephant and all, all the grubs and everything are there and they show the surgery where they cut the elephant's trunk and all the grubs are being pulled out it is disgusting it is far and away the most disgusting thing that i have covered on this show especially especially in the gamera series oh my god this is nasty 
I mean, it's, it's stock footage. It's real life. Like, oh, God, I don't want to see that. I don't know anybody wants to see that. So just be, be forewarned. That's all I'm going to say about that. So the kids take matters into their own hands. They take the submarine, which is, of course, a yellow submarine. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go sailing in the submarine right into Gamera's mouth. And this starts up what is essentially a Daikaiju version of Fantastic Voyage. As, you know, they, they, they go through Gamera's, down his windpipe, and then they start looking around. They're trying to find the lung where this egg was injected. Now, it's not really like Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage does all these wonderful visuals and all these crazy things that happen to them. They basically sail in and land, and then they're walking around inside these tunnels that look like Gamera. So, um, they hear Gamera's heartbeat during this, which is really nice. A thump, 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 which I thought was really kind of a clever touch. You would hear his heartbeat, especially since he's not dead. He is just resting. Uh, so I, I like that bit from a sound standpoint. Now, the kids run into Baby Jiger, and Baby Jiger is portrayed by the Jiger costume, naturally. Uh, but we do get to see an interesting sense of scale, because now, instead of Jiger interacting with the miniatures, Jiger's interacting with the kids. So it's kind of much the same way that uh, the boss Virus was the Virus costume in, in Gamera vs. Virus. Now we've got kind of the same idea here, where... And now they're interacting with humans, so you see the size of the actual uh, Jiger costume. Now, they've taken the spines all wrapped off from around the mouth, make it look a little more youthful. Um, Baby Jiger spits sticky goo, which, interestingly enough, is a power that adult Jiger does not display. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I guess if Baby Jiger had shot the needles, and the needles would have been piercing the kids, that would have been a little too much for the kids' audience, whereas here... Baby Jiger spits the goo and they get um, Hiroshi gets stuck in it at one point, which is a little bit different. So, After the kids are able to uh, defeat the Baby Jiger by the staticky sound from their radio, this gives them the idea that Baby Jiger is vulnerable to uh, low-frequency sounds. The plan is made that they have to revive Gamera, and their way to do this is they're going to defibrillate Gamera. And of course, in order to defibrillate Gamera, you need to run a giant electrical cord straight to his heart from a power plant. So the kids go back in with the submarine, dragging this cord, attach it. And uh, we do get a really nice model of a power plant. I've been around, I've designed and worked on power plants. I've never actually been to an operating one, but this one is a really nicely designed model of a modern power plant. It's very cool. Uh, during this sequence, they talk about how big Gamera is. So we do get Gamera's measurements in the dub as being 200 feet long and weighing 80 tons. So that's about... About right, when you think about it. So Gamera is revived and comes back, and him and Jiger have their final confrontation. Now, what's interesting here is that Gamera clearly learns from his mistakes. So anytime when Jiger she tries to do the spears, the, the needles again, the quills, he pulls all his limbs in to avoid it, and he's just rolling as a shell. So when she goes to use her atomic heat ray attack, Gamera, this, is, this I really liked is that he just no-sells it. She hits him right in the shell with it, and it doesn't do anything. And the only thing I could think of is that it's an atomic heat ray, right? So it's got to... It's heat energy. Gamera loves heat energy. We've seen this time and time again of him eating flames and stuff. So obviously, he can no-sell that all day because heat energy is not going to do anything to Gamera. Now, the ray does also create this high-frequency sound. And the onlookers are like, oh, Gamera's got to be careful. She'll burst his eardrums with this high-frequency sound. So 
Gamera grabs a couple of power poles and shoves them in his ears as earplugs. Because Dai, that's why. Because Gamera is awesome. And that is hilarious, and it's great, and that counters it right there. That doesn't... Blocks out the sound, it goes, moves in for the kill on Jiger. Jiger then, running out of options here, she tries the injector again. And she tries to stab him. Well, Gamera, again, learns from his mistakes. He grabs a tail, pins it down, and then actually picks up pieces of a tower and smashes the tail over and over and over again until the end breaks off. And it's like, yikes. Good gracious. I mean, like all Gamera fights, this one is pretty brutal. And uh, don't pull any punches here at the end. And that leads right into my next note, where Gamera ends the fight by taking the Devil's Whistle and jamming it through Jiger's head. Ouch. That's all I gotta say is that is ouch. Especially considering that Jiger bleeds red blood. Usually monsters in the Gamera series have, you know, like different colored blood, so it's not as grotesque. But here, no, this blood trickling straight out after being impaled with this giant stone statue. So that was, that was something. Um, Gamera, of course, now, the day being saved, flies Jiger impaled on the, uh, Devil's Whistle out of there. And the grown-ups all put over the idea of children's imagination and that the kids' faith in Gamera and their imagination on how to solve this problem was what saved the day and that we should never underestimate child's imag- a child's imagination. So I thought that was nice. It was put over, uh, again, that, that probably went over well with the audience because the audience was all going to be children, most likely, for this film. So it seems to me that's an appropriate final message to have as, you know, the day has been saved, thanks in part to the uh, thought, the uh, imagination and creativity of two kids. Now, ultimately, this is a formulaic Gamera film, as most all of them are, but it's very ambitious. Uh, it does a lot with what it has and a lot with its running time. It stands out as a better entry in the series, uh, certainly better than the last two, than uh, Virus and Giren. Uh, a very good enemy monster in Jiger. She is really well realized. She's almost like a, a, like a, a better done version of Berrigan. I mean, I really like Berrigan, so I may be more prone, but Jiger is really a good foe. And it was, uh, you know, it would have been interesting to see her come back in the Heisei film. She didn't, wouldn't have really fit in with the motif, but the idea for being an ancient monster, maybe, maybe they could have done something with that. We get actual scenes of city smashing. And uh, um, preview of coming attractions, Gamera versus Zegra, we're not going to really see it. And a creative twist with the Fantastic Voyage riff, which, again, it's not a, it's not really like Fantastic Voyage, but the idea of humans going inside the monster to, to help him, I thought that was a really nice touch. It's not as crazy as Gamera versus Giren, but really what movie is. And to be frank, as a, as a taken overall as a film, it's a better film experience and a better um, uh, viewing experience than Gamera vs. Guren, which is just crazy go nuts. And you, you watch it just like, what? You know, th- this one actually plays a really solid, straight Daikaiju movie, and I was very impressed on my rewatch. So uh, it gets my recommendation. Now, if you want to watch this, Mill Creek has released this film as part of their Gamera box sets on uh, Blu-ray. Now, they have a four-pack, which contains the four second-half Showa films, so Guren, Jiger, Zegra, and Super Monster Gamera. Right now, that is $8.19 on Amazon as of this recording. Now, it appears to be out of print, because if you look, it's from a seller. It's not from Amazon. And what's interestingly, uh, more interesting as we continue on this, is that Mill Creek also put out an 11-disc DVD set, which has 
the eight Showa films and the three Heisei films, that is $35. It also appears to be out of print because you can only get it from sellers, not from Amazon. And then they did an 11-disc Blu-ray set. That is much more money. It's like 85 bucks, but also appears to be out of print. So I don't know. I, I, it's really odd that all these Mill Creek Gamera ones have gone out of print. They were very easy to find when they were released. And I'm sure if you check eBay or even, again, Amazon resellers, that's usually not a problem at all. You can find them. It's just odd. I'm guessing that maybe Mill Creek maybe lost the license to them or something. But the only thing I can think of. Uh, because... The, uh, the earlier release of this was from Shout Factory. It was on a double-disc set with Gamer vs. Buren. Now, that you can buy that off of Amazon through a reseller for about 25 bucks, but again, it's out of print. Uh, the, the ones that Mill Creek put out are very nice. I've got the, uh, the, the two uh, Showa sets, and I've got the, uh, the Heisei set as well, I think. But they're, they're, if you can find them, that's worth picking up. They're real nice. They're, they're very bright, colorful. I believe they have dubs and subs on all of them. No special features, really, but that's not surprising with these. But definitely worth picking up. So um, you also, if you go on Amazon, you can watch it on Amazon Video with a subscription to Shout Factory TV, which I think is like $3 a month. You get access to all the crazy Shout Factory stuff that they put out. So if you're into that, you should look into that. I, I'm not, I don't really watch a lot of video on Amazon. I don't have Amazon Prime, but I own all these movies anyway. So to me, it's not necessarily an avenue I need to explore. And I'm going to put this out there. If you look, you can probably find it on YouTube. Just a hint. So uh, what do you guys think? Have you watched Gamera vs. Jiger? Did you see this one as a kid? What do you think about this one? Like I said, it wasn't on TV nearly as much as some of the other ones, so I don't remember ever seeing it as a kid, but I really enjoyed this. I'd like to hear what you think. Send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We can talk about it here. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 18 was released by the Marvel Comics Group. Cover dated January 1979, released on or about October 3rd, 1978. As always, this information comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at mikesamazingworld.com or dcindexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey with uh, inks by Joseph Rubenstein. And it shows Godzilla battling against a sewer rat. Now, you know what you're thinking. Why is Godzilla fighting a sewer rat? Well, remember last time he got shrunk down by the pin particles. So we see Godzilla battling against a vicious rat 
with various debris floating by, and the cover copy says, Battle Beneath 8th Avenue. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Daniel Green. Letterer is Diana Albers. Colorist is Ben Sean. Our editor is Jim Shooter. The title of our story is Fugitive in Manhattan. And our synopsis, as always, comes from marvel.wikia.com. Arriving in New York, where Professor Hawkins can study Godzilla, the creature's cage is accidentally dropped and Godzilla gets loose, ending up in New York's sewer system. With the amount of time that Pym's shrinking gas will last in question, it's a race against time as everyone fans out to try to find the creature before it returns to its normal size and rampages through the city. While in the sewers, Godzilla comes face to face with a New York City sewer rat and easily kills the beast. Emerging from the sewers, the creature stumbles upon Rob, who had snuck out of Behemoth to find Godzilla on his own to be sure nobody hurts the monster. As the boy is reunited with the monster, it suddenly begins to grow in size to be on par in height with a human adult. Next issue, Godzilla's New York adventure continues with, among other improbabilities, the brawl on the docks. Okay, so continuing our very offbeat story here about them using the pin particle to shrink Godzilla, naturally, he's got to escape. So I thought this was a fun, fast-paced issue. Let's get into the notes. Our cover, what I like about the cover is that it, it plays with our perspective because everything is small, okay? So while Godzilla is fighting this rat, you could at first think, if you just look quickly, that it's Godzilla fighting like Ralph from Rampage, you know, a big rat monster, right? But then you look and you see there's piping and valves and a brick wall and so and a soda cap and a matchbook. So it's very clear that, you know, they're playing with the perspective. You know, we're used to seeing on Godzilla covers of, we saw this the last time of, um, you know, one thing being, one element being large and the other elements being small. Last time, uh, Trimpy played with us by having the, the humans be uh, large, particularly Dum Dum Duggan, and having Godzilla being small. Well, here now everything is small. So I, I like this quite a bit. The detail is really nice. I really like the, the soda bottle cap, and, which is any soda, which is, I thought, funny. And uh, the matchsticks and then the brick wall behind uh, our two combatants here. It's a really nice cover. I've seen this cover before. I think uh, Dr. Bill Robinson covered this on an episode of Back to the Bins. And, but I, but I'd seen this cover before that. I remember seeing this cover long ago and I really like it. It's very, very nice and very offbeat like the rest of the story. So, uh, page one is our splash page. Completely flips the script with our normal splash pages here because now Godzilla is the small thing and the humans are the large thing. Godzilla is actually breathing his atomic fire and blowing up, uh, Dum Dum Cigar, which is, which is kind of funny. Uh, the facial expressions here are all really nice. Dum Dum looks shocked. Um, Hawkins is kind of looking with professional interest. Uh, Professor uh, uh, Takaguchi is uh, kind of looking on grimacing, and um, Gabe has this like "what" look on his face, which is really nice. I like the facial expressions here from from Trimpy. Turning over now to pages uh, three through six, we do get a couple of ads in the middle here, so it's not quite as long as that would indicate. Um, we got Tamara and Jimmy's soap opera romance. And, you know, I read this, and I see them going back and forth, and all I can say is, Can't you kids see you love each other? Ugh, I'm, so, I'm a romantic deep down. Uh, now, this gets, in the middle of this, we get Rob Takaguchi, who has plenty of feelings about his role in all of this, and it's understandable, because, in the one hand, 
Yeah, he did help kind of lure Godzilla out to getting shrunk down last time, but at the same time, would you rather he got shrunk or he got killed? So I think Rob is, is um, a bit conflicted here, and Munch does a, a pretty good job with Rob in this issue. And I think now that we've gotten past the whole Mega Monsters thing with Rob and Red Ronin, I, he's kind of come into his own a little bit. He doesn't annoy me nearly as much as he previously did. All right, page seven is our second splash page, and it's a really nice shot. So basically, it's like we're in a helicopter down past Battery Park, looking back up Manhattan. And in the East River, floating above it, is the behemoth. So you can see how big the behemoth is relative to the East River. Behind behemoth, okay, we've got the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. Okay, so they're cl it's clearly the Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan Bridge. And this is clearly... Um, the Battery, or the Financial District, as if you will, because you got both the Battery, you got Battery Park here in the front and the Financial District. So I really like this. Um, even as a static image, this is a really nice splash page by Trimpy. It shows the size of Behemoth. It shows some really good um, New York geography. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I took a look at Wikipedia. They've got a great shot of the Financial District. And... Some of the buildings have changed, obviously, but there's some that look pretty dead on. So this this is a really nice depiction here. And uh, get ready. I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be a little inside baseball for New Yorkers later on. But this is the first step of it. I really do like this page. Very nice. Over now on pages 10 and 11, as they're unloading onto the little landing craft out of Behemoth, Professor Hawkins is carrying the cage, and he drops it. And the cage bangs against the the, the, the stairs, and Godzilla falls right into the East River. And actually, it's funny. Hawkins just goes, oops. Dum Dum says, oops. Is that all you got to say? Oops. And uh, so, like all of us, Dum Dum immediately suspects Rob. But Rob says, uh, well, Dum Dum says, um, unless someone unfastened the spring catch. All right, Rob, you little pint-sized lizard lover. Let's hear it. Did you unlock that cage? And Rob says, I, I don't know. I, I thought about it, but I knew I shouldn't. It was real weird. I was talking to Godzilla and feeling sorry for him feeling guilty, and I went numb. Dum-Dum says, numb? And Rob says, yes, I went into a trance. I, I just don't remember. Okay, let's say, let, let's examine both possibilities. Either Rob is lying, okay, or he went into kind of a trance, you know, kind of a fugue state or whatever, and doesn't remember what happened. Okay, so he goes into either on purpose or without realizing it, and Jimmy's the spring catch on the cage. How does he know that Professor Hawkins is going to drop it? Because at first I thought, oh, well, maybe Rob trips him. But if you look, Rob is actually in front of Professor Hawkins. And on page 10, panel 3, he has one leg in the craft already. And then on the next panel, he's looking back as if he has stepped in and has now turned around to look at everyone boarding. So it's not like Rob trips him. How does Rob know Professor Hawkins is going to drop the cage? It's a coincidence. You kind of have to let it go for this to work. Uh, I get the feeling that if Rob had actually tripped Hawkins and Godzilla had gotten out, that would mean that any damage done to New York by Godzilla would be 100% Rob's fault. So I suspect that this is Mensch kind of covering his bases a little bit, that if Rob did it, he didn't realize he did it, and it was an Allen accident, so it's still really Hawkins' fault because Hawkins should have been carrying it better. I'd also like to point out that, okay, fine, Godzilla's in a little cage, you should have put the cage in another container or something, shouldn't you? Something more secure than a bird cage? 
So, you know, that does mistake. As I say, mistakes were made, you know, pointing fingers is not what we're doing right now. So. All right. Turning over now to pages uh, 14 through 17. This is where Godzilla travels through the streets and then into the sewers of Manhattan. Uh, this reminds me kind of of the build up to the beta beast fight in issue number 12, because we have Godzilla who's completely inscrutable. You know, he's just got his red and black eyes. There's no emotion betrayed or anything by that. We don't not insight any of his thoughts, but we have Mench as the narrator who kind of gives the overview of, of what's happening. And so it's kind of a similar idea with this omniscient narrator and the inscrutable Godzilla. And it makes kind of a similar buildup now. Okay. So judging from the cover, which says battle beneath eighth Avenue. Okay. Godzilla gets in from travels from the East river to 8th Avenue, okay? Now, 8th Avenue starts at Hudson and Bleecker in the West Village, all right? So, using Google Maps, I did just a rough estimate. I, I picked a spot right by um, right, right by the, uh, the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge and drew a straight line from, from the, the, co the, the bank of the East River right to the beginning of 8th Avenue. As the crow flies, that's about two miles. So Godzilla, who's the size of a rat, he's small enough that, that he's maybe what, maybe maybe 10 inches, 12 inches overall, travels two miles, heading generally um, um, northwest from the financial district up towards the village. Now, if you look at the map, that means he also skirts past um, uh, uh, Little Italy, he skirts past, and, and Chinatown, okay? So he travels quite a far distance. And, and I don't know if this is going to be addressed at all, the how far away he got, but it does also beg the question later on, how the hell does Rob get near him? Unless he is now traveling back through the sewers and he's no longer under 8th Avenue. So, like I said, this, this is, if you've never been to Manhattan, these names don't mean a whole lot, but if you take a look, go to Google Maps and look up uh, the Brooklyn Bridge or look up 8th Avenue. Go to the start of 8th Avenue, like I said, at, at Hudson Street and Bleecker. And, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, that he, they, he covers a lot of distance here. So uh, I, I'm really hoping that this is intentional and that the idea is that Godzilla covers all this ground because, you know, he's moving pretty quick and all that. But, uh, you know, it, it, I did like it that, uh, you know, that, that they actually show him it's not just generic stuff. He actually does appear to be traveling in a real version of Manhattan. So I thought that was, that was nice as this, uh, you know, um, native New Yorker who has now, you know, since uh, uh, you know, relocated to South Carolina many years ago. But, you know, any, anything like that in New York, especially the city, because, you know, how many times I went to the city and all that growing up, being in uh, lower New York. So that was that was a nice touch. All right, on page 22, um, Howard's, Hugh Howard's, the pilot, is left to keep an eye on Rob Takaguchi while Dum Dum and everybody else has spread out looking for him. Howard's never struck me as an abject idiot before this sequence, but Rob easily tricks him by saying, yeah, we're going to play a game of checkers, and then disappears. And uh, and Howard's is like, oh, okay, you're a sly one. But uh, uh, so I, I, I really, I guess somebody has to be the fall guy, and it can't be Dum Dum. It can't be Gabe. So it's got to be Howard's. I don't think Howard's shows up after this series anyway, but uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Now, on page 23, he makes a really, really bad joke saying that when Dum Dum finds out about this, he'll have my tail looking like a spruce goose. Eh? Eh? Because his name is Hugh Howard, huh? 
Yeah, I didn't think so either. All right, pages 26 through 30. This is Godzilla locked in Mortal Kombat with the Sewer Rat. Uh, good sequence here. Uh, I like that it's reptile versus mammal, and our narrator specifically puts over the uh, the ins the uh, the reflexes, the very quick reflexes of the rat, and that he has on his home field uh, turf. On uh, page 26, panel three, the rat chomps down on Godzilla's right arm. Godzilla then throws it into the into the fetid water and dives after it. And then after the Godzilla comes in, the rat goes for a killing blow because on page 27, panel three, we see him bite Godzilla right in the neck, right in the jugular. So the rat is going, he's acting like a like a sewer rat. He's going for the kill. I thought that was really nice. Godzilla no-sells it whatsoever. And then blasts him with his tiny atomic breath. So you know that probably smells really, really wonderful, you know. Very brutal fight, if a bit of a mismatch. Finally now, on page 31, uh, through a progression of three panels, we see Godzilla growing, growing, growing. And Rob is starting to get freaked out. In fact, it ends the issue yelling, No, Godzilla, stay back! So, a uh, big cliffhanger? Eh? 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 But uh, it does kind of, um, you know, point out the uh, the real flaw in this plan is that, you know, if you let him escape and run around, you can't get him to a secured location. You don't know how long the pin particles are going to work on him because his physiology is different than the physiology of a human, which is what Tim designed them for. So, um, overall, as part of a storyline, which really could have been played as just a gimmick, this is a good standalone chapter. It tells a complete story here of Godzilla's escape his adventure in New York, and then it changes, you know, what's good, leaves on a cliffhanger for the next installment. The fight with the rat uses the developments of the story and the setting very well. I love them tangling in this fetid sewer. It's this awful environment for them to be fighting in, but it makes sense. Godzilla, even though Tiny is still the king of the monsters, he's still, you know, uh, he's still a force to be reckoned with, and no rat is going to be able to, uh, to deal with that. The art is consistent, as Trimpy has been throughout the series. It looks wonderful. There's no uh, panels that stand out as being, oh, wow, he kind of phoned that one in. Trimpy's work on this. You know, whether you like Herb Trimpy or not, uh, I've grown to really appreciate his stuff handling uh, these monster books with Shogun Warriors and now Godzilla. It, 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 I really appreciate it. And his stuff really, I look forward to seeing it each month when I break these out. The cliffhanger, to me, suggests this story still has a few twists and turns in it. It's not just going to be a straight, I mean, obviously Godzilla's got a, he's now human size, so what's going to happen now? You know, I haven't read ahead, so. I'm looking forward to finding out, and I'm hoping you guys are enjoying this too. As always, this issue has only been collected in Essential Godzilla, so be sure to pick that one up if you don't have the originals. Now, taking a look through, let's take a look at some ads real quick. We've got the Energized Spider-Man again. Um, we got the uh, 1979 Heralds a New Year of Marvel Greatness, and the one that stands out to me here is um, the uh, Jacqueline... Uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby's Silver Surfer graphic novel, which I always love the cover on that one. Um, we get, I like this one, the, the uh, Marvel subscription uh, uh, house ad. I like it just because it, not a, besides kind of the usual suspects, also has Conan and uh, Luke Cage. Luke Cage making an appearance here in 1979. Very cool. Uh, continuing to flip through, we get, you know, kind of this typical, we get the hodgepodge ad. Um, now, this one. This is a two true freaks connection here. Just when you thought the waters were safe again, Jaws 2. Rick Marshall, Gene Colan, and Tom Palmer present the tension-filled Marvel Comics version of the year's most thrilling motion picture, the adaptation of Jaws 2. Very cool. Directly opposite that 
is a full-page house ad for something special. It's happening to the Invincible Iron Man. This is uh, this uh, image is drawn by uh, Jim Lealoa, but it says a new direction on sale now from same old Marvel, a new creative team. And listen up, it's David Michelini, John Romita Jr., and Bob Layton. This is the start of the first Bob and Dave run, and that is some fantastic comics. Really great stuff. You guys know I'm a huge Iron Man fan, so seeing that uh, Iron Man house ad really brought a smile to my face, especially in the pages of Godzilla, two of my absolute favorites of all time. Uh, we get bullpen bulletins and the uh, Stanley soapbox. Nothing really all that great. Kind of putting over pizzazz, and uh, they're talking about Jaws, and uh, uh, they, they have a, a little hype box here for Battlestar Galactica. They don't kind of go into it. It just says... You want still more? You bet. We've got another super special come number eight coming at any minute, but the whole project is so darn secret, we dare not do more than mention it. A word to the wise. Watch your TV listings and your local newsstands for Battlestar Galactica. Enough said. Uh, and then, you know, inside front cover is full-color posters. We get Cheryl Teagues in a bikini. Wow. <laughs> like that one. And then we do have uh, a hostess ad. This is one I think... I've covered before, but not in Godzilla. I think I covered this in Shogun Warriors, actually. But uh, Captain Marvel meets the Dreadnought, and it goes a little something like this. They did it again, Captain Marvel. The Dreadnought Raider just hijacked another automated supply ship to the Omega Space Station. I see the Dreadnought ahead with its victim. Exerting his tremendous strength, the Kree warrior propels the Raider ship into another galaxy, releasing the supply ship. Captain Marvel, you've driven the Dreadnought Raider off. Our supply ships will be safe in the future. But most of all, you rescued our shipment of Hostess Fruit Pies. I thought we'd never enjoy these apple or cherry pies again. Now we can enjoy the light, tender crust. And the real fruit filling. It is not right for evil to rule men's destiny, or to deprive them of Hostess Fruit Pies. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. I think this is probably the least amount of talking a hero does in any of these. Captain Marvel has two lines and about 20 words that he speaks. I mean, we get his Negaband talks to him, the crew gets a bunch of lines, the narrator's here, but Captain Marvel, he's stoic. He's very stoic. <laughs> this is Cap in his red and blue costume, so at least he'll be somewhat recognizable to, uh, to readers, I guess. Uh, I, I love these Hostess fruit pies. It makes me want a fruit pie. But, you know, hey, can't always get what you want. All right, so that about does it for uh, Godzilla number 18. Have you guys read this one? What do you think? Are you enjoying this storyline? I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's a lot different than, uh, obviously, everything that's come before it. But, you know, different is good. I like these. We've had kind of a run of some good stuff here. The, the Western one was not as, you know, over-the-top awesome as the Mega Monsters. But it certainly was fun. And this story's been really good. So I'm really enjoying this. Send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Tell me what you think. We'll have to talk about it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for my favorite portion of the show, and it's listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Or, of course, you can always listen to the outro and find out the other ways to get in touch with me through Facebook, Twitter, and what have you. Let's get into the feedback. Our first email comes from my good friend, Professor Allen. And Alan writes with the subject Ultraman episodes from Earth Destruction Directive number 61. Luke, I wasn't able to watch these Ultraman episodes before your episode came out. Personally, I blame the Winter Olympics. But I did delay listening to episode 61 to watch those episodes first, and I have a few thoughts. I hadn't noticed this before. Maybe it's how far they are into this season, but there are definite shades of orange in the orange Science Patrol suits. And that's, uh, that is, that is very true. Just like there is visible, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, vi- visual changes in Ultraman's face and suit as the series progresses. You get the feeling that maybe they were kind of making new, they had seamstresses making new uh, uniforms because there are definite color changes. You can see little different, little differences that maybe you wouldn't see on the VHS, but now on DVD, it's clear enough that you can see it. So that's very much a good catch. Uh, Alan continues, there are some pretty cool visuals and camera tricks in episode 17. The pair of troublemaking meteors. Definitely low-budget stuff, but somehow it worked to give the whole episode a weird, eerie vibe. Even the toy tanks looked good. There are elements of this I remember seeing when I was a kid, the strange things that Ultraman faces. I don't totally know why, but I bought into everything in this particular episode. Not sure where it stands amongst the fans broadly, but it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, uh, that's the... Um, uh, Bolton, with the, the, the meteorite monster Bolton. It's such an odd episode. You know, that, that's what I like about it is that it is so unusual in not only Bolton's powers, but even the setup with, you know, the two halves of Bolton creating all the, the alternate, you know, warping reality and then shifting the planes to the ground and the tanks to the air and all that. And Ultraman can't just chop and kick this guy. And so it, it's, it definitely stands out to me. In so far as it's just unusual. Now, Bolton is not a monster that is super popular because I guess he doesn't, you know, have the same tooth and claw appeal of somebody like Red King or uh, Gamora or what have you. But he's he's certainly unique and and he does stand out amongst the admittedly wide range of monsters that Ultraman fights. Bolton is to me the most unique and the most outlandish. So he, if nothing else, he's got that on his side. Alan continues, I don't understand the differences in the subs and the dubs sometimes, the disparate translation choices that are made. In episode 17, the sub refers to London while the dub says Paris. 
at one point in terms of which international science patrol branch was involved. Very strange. I wonder if the original Japanese says something about European city, and then each translation took that a different way. Hard to say. Only thing I could think with that, with the subs versus the dubs, is I tend to think that the subs that we have on the Mill Creek DVD release are mostly accurate to the Japanese. That is what I have been, that is what I understand it to be from uh, posts I've seen about people that are bilingual and, and, and have seen it. The dubs, a lot of times you got to remember on details like that where it's not as important, it doesn't matter which whether it's London or Paris really for the purposes of the story, it just has to be a different branch, is that a lot of times they will try to match the syllables with the of the words being spoken with the lip movement. So little changes like that sometimes happen. Now there are some times where the dub and the sub are vastly different, and I'm not sure what the deal is with that. It could just be that they didn't like how the you know what the what the what the actual dialogue was and change it up to, to fit it a little better. But you know that's uh, that that would I, that would be my thought. I need to go back and I watch these with the subtitles. I have to go back and watch the dub and see if that if that's the case where maybe Paris fits the lip motions a little bit better than London in this case. Although you wouldn't I mean Paris, London, they're both kind of similar in how you would move your mouth. But I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of an arcane art <laughs> for dubbing in these, uh, these Japanese imports. Alan continues, episode 18 was interesting and had some iconic bits and the infiltration of the science patrol by the aliens was a cool idea, but I don't think it held up quite as well as the other one. Maybe that's because they promoted Hoshino from schoolboy to full science patrol status. Look, I know that realism is not what these shows are about, but watching these when they, when both they and I are 50 plus years old, I just had more trouble getting into this one. That being said, there are interesting bits in both of these, and the series is hitting a nice stride here in terms of storytelling. There are definite hints here of the top-notch stories that are just around the corner. Thanks for the shout-out last episode. Doom approves. And I always try to say on the good side of the uh, attaché to the Latverian embassy, so, uh, you know, keep that in mind when reviews come around, Professor. Uh, Professor finishes, keep up the good work, Luke, and keep them stomping. Professor Allen, relatively geeky podcast network, Dorkness to Light. And he doesn't have it here, but I'll include that he is also, of course, the host of Quarterbin Podcast and Relatively Geeky Presents. Uh, all great stuff. You should check out the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Alan, thank you very much for writing in. I know whenever I cover an Ultraman episode, that, that, piques, your, that piques your interest. I know you're an Ultraman fan and an old school Ultraman fan at that, so glad you enjoyed them. I thought these were two good ones, and you're right. There's some really good stuff coming down the pike because we got, um, if I'm remembering right, we've got Gamora coming up. We've got Telesodon coming up. Um, we've got Jamila, which is, you know, my favorite episode of Boris and Barilla are coming up. So there's some good monsters and some good episodes coming. And I'm really eager to keep moving through this series. It's been a lot of fun revisiting Ultraman kind of in a more critical way rather than just marking out and really trying to examine the series critically. So I very much enjoyed it. And I'm glad you're enjoying my coverage as well. Our next email today comes from a good friend of the show and good friend in my real life, Mr. Adam Tebow. And Adam writes with the subject, Japanese Spider-Man! Greetings, Luke! Stan Lee's mention of his trip to Japan and the Japanese live-action Spider-Man in the pages of Godzilla inspired me to write in. This is something you probably already know, but your listeners may not. Spider-Man was not the end of Marvel and Toei's partnership. There was a planned adaptation of Captain America in the works with the star being, wait for it, Captain Japan. For whatever reason, Toei decided to go in another direction and instead produced Battle Fever J, reviving the Super Sentai franchise 
which, and I'm going to jump into Adam's email here, he's absolutely right. After Go Ranger and uh, 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 Jaka, which is where Big One comes from and all that, the, Super, the Sentai series was on hiatus. They went on hiatus so they could do Spider-Man, and then what became Battle Fever J revived the Super Sentai series. And so that is very true. Adam is right on point here. Bits and pieces of the Captain America idea made it into the end product, especially with the individual Sentai members being Battle Japan, Battle Kenya, etc. They did decide to carry over the idea of the hero having access to a giant robot from Spider-Man, adding one to the Super Sentai franchise for the first time. It's odd to think that a mainstay of modern Japanese culture like Super Sentai was shaped so much by the House of Ideas, but I suppose history is full of odd combinations like that. Anyways, I enjoyed the show as always. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. P.S. It is entirely your fault that I know any of this. I hope you're happy. Uh, yes, I'm extremely happy. Even if your wife is not real happy with me, I'm extremely happy. And I, I take full and utter responsibility for this. And I'm just glad to drag you along into this insane world that, that uh, we like to frequent here. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you very much for this email. Adam is dead on. Battle Fever J started out its life as this Captain America adaptation that was going to be a tokusatsu in the vein of spider-man and the i you know lepaldon the giant robo from spider-man is the reason why giant robo was added to battle fever j and then every super sentai after that because super sentai is kind of this weird middle ground right it's part henshin hero like common rider and part giant robo so the two of them mashed together to me is what always defines super sentai because when i got into super sentai it was the 90s and so we all, you know, that was the established formula. You know, Zoo Ranger, Dai Ranger, uh, Kaku Ranger, and all those going forward. So to look back, those early ones, those first two that don't have any robots, sometimes I see people split them apart and say, well, they're not the, air quotes up to the microphone, Super Sentai. They're just a regular Sentai because they don't have a giant robot. Uh, Tawai has, of course, included Go Ranger and Jaka in the Super Sentai series. So that's, you know, that's the official stance. But it is really a great point, and it's really neat that it was because of Spider-Man and the involvement of Marvel Comics that we got giant robots in the Super Sentai, which is now this massive thing that's been going on for decades and is still going strong today. That was a great email. Thank you very much, Adam. I, I We may need to cover some Spider-Man at some point, maybe on a Gaiden. I'll probably get um, Adam and Derek. I know they, <laughs> they would both be game for that. Um, Andrew Leyland um, on House of Grilling Delights recently had an e uh, someone email in talking about Spider-Man and he seemed really bemused by it. Uh, Andy's a big Spider-Man fan. I'm sure he would get a kick out of Spider-Man. So uh, thank you very much, Adam, and thank you very much, Alan, for writing in, guys. Really appreciate it. Again, if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, please send me an email, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I'll read you here on the show and uh, and we'll, we'll have to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, so now we get to the time at the end of every episode where we have to say we're not looking at the present, we're looking now over the horizon to the future and what's coming next time on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, we are going to be jumping forward from the Showa era into not the Heisei, but right past it into the Millennium Era and we are going to be taking a look at Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, Tokyo SOS from 2003, the direct sequel to Godzilla X Mechagodzilla from the year prior. This one is, uh, I like this one a lot. These, these uh, you know, these, these Millennium films kind of run hot and cold for some people. This one I thought was pretty cool. Kind of a 
not only a sequel to Godzilla X Mechagodzilla, but also kind of a remake of the original Mothra, which is interesting in a lot of ways. But we will definitely uh, get into that on the next episode. Also, continuing our coverage of Marvel Godzilla. We are in the home stretch now, where uh, we are going to be covering issue number 19, continuing the adventures of Godzilla in Manhattan with those pin particles wearing off. Uh, things are going to get dicey here, I think, but uh, we'll be taking a look at that in depth. Of course, any uh, news on all these different properties. We had so much news this time out. Who knows what could develop between now and the next time we talk. Um, any news, any developments, any of that stuff, we'll be sure to cover it. Of course, your emails and feedback, as always. I would like to thank everyone once again for downloading and listening to the episode. If I don't say it enough, thank you. You guys are the lifeblood of this show, and you are all appreciated. Uh, whether you uh, write in, whatever, it, it's there's... Every, this show is for everybody. If you like giant monsters or you want to learn about giant monsters, whatever it is, if you download this show and listen to this show, you are contributing to the success of this show and to the success of, of the podcast network in general. And, and I just have to say thank you. Uh, I really mean that. You know, a lot of times lately, it seems like, especially on like Facebook and, and Twitter, that you know it's either it's 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 this us versus them stuff and i and i don't care for it i really don't i would much rather and i know i've said this before but you know lord knows i repeat myself i would much rather focus on the things we have in common than the things we've that are different and if you have a interest a knowledge a thirst whatever about giant monsters and you download this show and you you are contributing that's all i have to say and i thank you the show is for everyone and you're all welcome here and you'll always be welcome here so never forget that and always have my thanks for this show. So uh, coming back next time for Tokyo SOS and Marvel Godzilla number 19. And uh, until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun 
on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.